Hi, this is James Joachim, host of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Today, with Gordon Firemark, attorney. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. I'm Gordon Firemark. Nice, to, nice talking to you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, just real quick, uh, what exactly do you do? Well, I am an entertainment media and business law attorney. I've been in uh, practice since 1992 here in Los Angeles, California. So I represent a lot of folks in the media industries, mostly independent film and television, and the folks that create the stuff that gets turned into film and television. So uh, authors, novelists, uh, you know, journalists, and, and comic artists and those kinds of folks. Okay. This is definitely going to be an interesting... That means I don't have to translate a lot. That's cool. Um, well, I guess we'll start off with the phone. Like, like so we're trying to do all sorts of weird stuff with WCRI. So, um, I guess the fun question is, uh, and I know this is going to be a relatively simple one, I hope. If I do a two, uh, if I do two different scripts, a comic book script and a movie script off the same property... Is that two different entities as far as copyright goes or the same one? Well, it sort of depends. If they both sprung from a common idea, but they have different storylines, different um, uh, arcs for the characters, for example, then I would treat them as separate. But if one sort of preceded the other, even though you were thinking of them as separate, uh, the, the chances are the, the one that follows is what we call a derivative work based on the original. So one copyright for the first work a new copyright for the second work, but it embodies the underlying material from the first. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so basically if I do a comic book script and I do a faithful adaptation, because obviously I'm the writer on both of them, yeah. that would be basically, that would still be kind of two different words a derivative and, a, and originating. Yeah. I mean, each iteration of a thing in, in whatever medium is considered a new work, uh, you know, so I wouldn't think of it as selling them separately to different parties because, you know, if you, if you were to make a, a film adaptation of your comic book or something like that, the film company that ultimately buys and wants to distribute it wants to know that you're not going to sell the comic book rights to some other film company. And then they end up with a competing film based on the same underlying material. But uh, and yeah, you as the, as the only writer, it's sort of not a big issue until you start splitting off rights and selling it to people. Right. Um, I'm obviously not going to be doing anything video anytime soon. Um, anyway, um, as far as the, something we tend to get into a lot is uh, homages. Uh, what's the basic rule on that? Uh, I'm bringing this up because of the Superman Shazam thing way back in the fifties, obviously. Right. So, um, you know, there is no specific carve out in the law for an homage. Um, um, you know, the, the nature of that is to, uh, to copy some of the elements of the original thing in order to either um, uh, promote and, and pay respect to, or sometimes to make fun of. And when it's making fun, we would call it parody or satire. Right. Right. Uh, I think the Shazam was kind of satirical look at at the Superman character. And there was another one in the in the seventies or early eighties. The uh, Greatest American Hero TV show uh, got sued by the folks behind the Superman brand, and uh, and they lost because uh, the court said no, it's not substantially similar. It's not really a copy. It only has certain common elements. You know, a caped 
a superhero is not something that we are going to give blanket protection to. And uh, it was different enough and funny enough and, you know, really was a parody. So parody is a form of, um, of uh, fair use, which is a sort of a carve out in the copyright law designed to protect uh, creators' First Amendment free speech rights. So, you know, we, we, if we say you can't ever copy anything, then we're limiting people's right to, to build on those things or to comment or criticize or parody them. <laughs> And so the fair use exception came up in the law and now has been codified since uh, the, the mid-70s into the, the copyright law itself and uh, isn't going anywhere soon, I think. Okay. Yeah, I just was curious because when I'm looking at it, sort of there's this, uh, sort of a difference between a straight homage versus a... If we're looking, I think going straight comic book, but... Um, with DC and Marvel, for example, there's a lot of characters have some definite similarities between the two that are actually designed that way. Um, the classic example, strangely enough, is uh, Legion of Superheroes and the Imperial Guard. Uh, if we were really looking at it, we'd be looking at Superman and the 27 million different variations of that. Uh, Supreme, um, you know... Even DC, even Marvel has their versions that are specifically making or doing a homage to Superman. Even though, of course, some of it has hit satire, but. Yeah, so even if it's not satire, even if it is sort of an, uh, an honoring, uh, as you would do with an homage, um, the, the, the question that we deal with when, it, when we ask whether something is copyright infringement is, is it, well, did they have access to the original and are the two things substantially similar to one another? That question of substantial similarity really is the turning point uh, for determination of whether it's a copy or not. Now, what we have to do, though, is exclude from the co- that question of substantial similarity is any components or elements that are sort of uh, essential to the genre, you know, kind of like I was saying, with a cape or, or a superhero that can fly or something like that. Those kinds of elements are what the copyright law views as sends a fair, um, uh, essentially sort of, you can't have a car chase. <laughs> I mean, sorry, you can't have a cop movie without a car chase. So we're not going to protect the car chase as a thing. Same thing with, with a, a superhero, uh, comic or, or cartoon or movie or whatever. We're, we're going to keep those, um, I don't want to say generic, but those sort of commonplace standard, Things that always that have to show up in order to make this kind of story work. The uh, tropes, same place. Yeah, the tropes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, I just want to cover that because it's just a, it's just one of those things that doesn't quite. I mean, I know that parody is covered under fair use. It's just when you start getting into some of the sillier stuff, it tends to get really weird really quick. Well. You know, interestingly, parody is covered under fair use, but there are lots of other kinds of fair use. And an homage, like we've described, might very well be considered fair use because the purpose and character of that is to comment and congratulate or, or, or you know, praise the original thing. Uh, similar in a way to the way a movie reviewer might review a movie and, of course, has to talk about the film in order to do so. So it's possible that an homage would be considered fair use as well. Um, but it's going to be a case-by-case determination. Definitely. Like I said, we're going back to uh, Captain Marvel and uh, Superman, for example. Yeah. The case that basically killed the company. 
So, see, and of course, and you know, I've done a lot of the copyright stuff in other interviews. I figure what I was going to do is actually take to a certain advantage of the fact that you're also a business lawyer as well. Um, how comfortable are you talking about the dreaded corporate veil? The dreaded corporate veil. I'm delighted to talk about the corporate veil. <laughs> um, again, going back to, to a lot of comics tend to be businesses. Um, obviously, we start looking at some of the you know obvious business practices that can help or hinder the comics. Um, exactly what is the corporate veil? Well, the corporate veil is a reference to one of the the benefits of forming a corporation or a limited liability company now has a similar concept to a corporate veil. So if you don't mind, I'm going to back up a little bit and, and give you the, the background on it. So when a person creates something uh, artistic and, and puts it out into the world or does any kind of business uh, without forming an entity, without, you know, doing the paperwork and getting things filed with the government and so on, that person is considered a sole proprietor, or if it's more than one person, they're considered partners. And that's fine as far as the managing the relationship between the partners or whatever. But when you come to dealing with um, uh, liability questions and uh, financial issues and so on, uh, each partner or each owner of a business is liable for anything that happens in the business. And so if you did have a comic that had a copyright infringement or, or injured somebody's rights somehow, the, the person who created the comic and therefore is its owner would be responsible and liable for any money damages that might be uh, uh, incurred. When you form a corporation or a limited liability company, you are essentially erecting a, a shield around the, the, or between the company and its owners so that the company remains liable. It's a separate person in the eyes of the law. So it's the company that would be liable for those injuries or damages, but the individual owners of the company, which might include shareholders if you've used the company as a financing vehicle, the, that shield protects those owners from liability for those kinds of things. Uh, so the, the, the real values of forming a, a company like a corporation or a limited liability company is that limitation on liability, the corporate veil, the, um, the street cred, of course, that you get from having Inc. or LLC after the name of your business, believe it or not, that's a thing. Uh, the ability to use the company's structure as a way of uh, uh, handling the management structure of things, defining the management structure of things. And then finally, the ability to use um, uh, the sale of securities, sale of membership interests or shares to investors as a way of financing the operations of the company. And so the corporate veil is is there to protect those shareholders, and that's why we, we love that protection. Definitely. Breaking that down just a little bit, um, and I just had the great question, and it's like slips away. I hate it when that happens. The real quick version is that, so let's say if you, get, you get sued by somebody for doing a copyright law. That means that basically your company would, assets would be online and not your personal assets. Generally speaking, yes. The owner of the of the hold on, I'll start over. Yes, generally the owner of the copyright in the subsequent work, the one that's alleged to be infringing, would be liable for any damage or harm or infringement or whatever that that the work might cause. And so, when you have the the 
uh, ownership of the of that work inside a company. It's the company that's responsible for that, rather than the individual artists who work for the company or who transfer. Well, so transferring ownership raises other concerns, but basically that's the thing. Oh. This is what happens when you have an office. Nobody ever calls me until Friday afternoon. <laughs> so, um, so, all right. So I think I got enough of an answer out there. Do I need to follow it up at all? Nah. Okay. Um, obviously, I'm basically looking for funding. Like, um, obviously, the LLC is actually going to help me as well yeah. because it adds a little bit of prestige to the company. Indeed, yes. The, the LLC entity is sort of the modern favorite because it's a little simpler to operate and uh, in many cases cheaper to uh, establish and, and run. Okay. Um, you, are you familiar with crowdsourcing at all? I am. Okay. How would this translate over to the, how would this translate over to you if I was doing a Kickstarter? I'm not sure that the question of, of the corporate entity really has much bearing on that. Um, you know, whoever it is that owns the material and wants to develop it into something is certainly free to uh, use a Kickstarter campaign or, or a similar kind of a crowdfunding uh, platform as the way, as a, as a tool to d generating revenue for the company. The thing to remember is that there are two flavors of crowdfunding. The first being the donation base, the Kickstarters and the Indiegogos of the world where you're just, you know, the, the person makes a contribution and might get some kind of a quid pro quo, a t-shirt, a copy of the comic book or whatever it is, but that's really it. They're not an investor. They're not expecting to see a return on that investment. Um, you know, if the thing blows up, they, they're not going to see anything more than the t-shirt they got. Uh, then there is the investment crowdfunding, which is a relatively new, um, uh, phenomenon, and we haven't seen a lot of how it, how it's working out for folks yet, but it, it is possible to uh, go through certain crowdfunding platforms that will allow you to to uh, give those investors a, a, a piece of the action on the on the back end of the thing as it grows, and so that is pretty attractive because you know you can raise up to a million dollars that way to uh, to fund a project like a like a comics project or a film or theater project or anything. Yeah, because you're starting to see a lot of interesting. Um, you're starting to see a lot of crossover, especially when we start looking at companies like Drunk Duck, that sort of thing. Uh, Drunk Duck is a web comic site that basically is, uh, for lacking a better term, is basically an aggregator. Yeah, it basically takes all these people, lets them, gives them a little bit of web space, and lets them basically do whatever they want with their web comic within certain limitations. Oh. Um. Basically, it's an online comic book for lack, for okay. lack of a better reference. Yeah. Um, Drunk Duck is also, every once in a while, tries to step into actual film produ production. And I think you've actually, I, I think they've tried it a couple of times, but they haven't really succeeded just yet. Yeah. That's actually one of the things you, you want to watch out for as a creator and an owner of material is that as you start doing business with these uh, aggregators or putting your stuff on sites that in the terms of service that you're putting it up there, you're not giving them rights that you're not, that you weren't aware you're giving. Like, for example, uh, a right of first refusal to acquire film rights in something or something like that. I'm not familiar with Drunk Talk particularly, but I, I have seen some of these uh, online film festivals, online um, uh, 
contests and competitions where they, they sort of grab at certain rights that if you're not careful and reading things line for line, you might miss. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, I'm looking at the video and going, I definitely should have shaved it this morning. Um, Nobody's going to see the video. I hope so. <laughs> is there any general business advice you'd have for somebody doing a comic? Well, you know, I think this is the same advice I give to many kinds of creators and artists. And, and that is that, yes, it's, it's wonderful to be in the, in the world of art and creating fun stuff that inspires and, and gets your juices flowing. But if you want to really make it and have a career in it, you have to think of yourself as being in business and having a business-like approach to things. And what that means is thinking about, should I form some kind of an entity to separate my personal from my business life? Should I um, register my copyrights and protect my trademarks? I think that's a very important uh, component of things. And um, using contracts. When you work with a collaborator, you should have something in writing that lays out what the relationship is. You don't want to have, you know, start your company and then, you know, you, you put out five titles and on the fifth title, you've got a collaborator who now thinks he's a co-owner of the company, for example, something like that. So you, you want to make sure that you're thinking about the, the potential pitfalls and making sure you document things as you go. And good contracts make for good partners, frankly, good business relationships. So um, I don't think it's ever too soon to start thinking about the legal and business affairs aspects of things. You don't let it consume your life, but, you know, being mindful and, um, and uh, taking the time to, to consider things, you know, every few months, just to, is there anything I'm doing here that I should be thinking about? Uh, and of course, watching out, knowing the rules about when you portray or depict a real person, um, you don't want to, you don't want to step on anybody's toes with their right of privacy or the right of publicity, the right to use that. That's the right of a person's, uh, uh to control their name or likeness in commercial uses. And, uh, you certainly don't want to defame anybody. And, uh, that, that would be, you know, false damaging information uh, statements made about a person. So there have been cases involving comics actually that, uh, um, portrayed real rock stars and stuff like that. And those rock stars weren't happy with the way they were <laughs> depicted in the book for whatever reason and sued and, and have won. Uh, it's gone both ways. So got to be careful. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting copyright as far as Roman Eccles novels type goes. So yeah. I think one person actually was, they were able to point out they were actually mentioned indirectly and they were still able to sue successfully. That's pretty unusual because most of the time just mentioning a person's name or even showing a picture of them, if it's in the context of an artistic work, in the creative context, not on, not on the cover where you're using it to sell or market the branding, uh, generally in that, in that context, you're okay with um, uh, mentioning a person's name. It's what we call a nominative use, and it's not implying any kind of endorsement or, or business relationship, so it's okay, but better to better to on the safe say, you know, side of caution and avoid that if you can or get the permission if you need it. Um, yeah, in, this case, in that, this, that specific case, it was a little bit more nuanced because the basically it was a friend of a friend type situation. Everybody who was involved with it knew yeah. exactly what the reference was. And so once it was put in there, it was considered yeah. libelous. And yeah, <laughs> again, context is king. 
Right. And, and libel, you know, when it's a false statement that hurts somebody's reputation, that's a, a pretty good slam dunk. doesn't have to do with um, their name or likeness so much as, you know, you've caused injury to their reputation. Um, yeah, it's also fun looking at the difference between libel and slanders, but right. we usually deal with just the one, so um, you don't you want, see... I'm sorry? You want me to cover that real quickly? Go for it. Okay. Well, so the difference between libel and slander is actually a fairly bright line we can, we can draw in the sand. You know? a, um, uh, a slander is a spoken word, generally a smaller audience. You know, one person stands on a, on a little stage and talking to a few dozen people or something like that, or even just one-to-one. That's slander. Um, libel is the, I guess you could say, the more serious version of that, where it's been somehow published or disseminated widely if it's in electronic media if it's on the web if it's that kind of thing it's definitely going to be considered libel not slander so that's really the distinction yeah and of course we're going to deal with that as creators we deal with that because of comic book panels yeah so we sort of have that fun situation where we have to watch what we're saying when we're ever in front of an audience the slander part versus whatever we're writing in our comics which is the other the libel so it gets fun, <laughs> especially when you start dealing with Twitter. Um, but yeah, it's just it, comics has gotten a lot more interesting than it ever was. Um, going back to transformative work, what can I get away with as far as what's the how far with that? Basically, how far can I get away with if I have two if I have a plot that's basically the same as two different stories? Um, Classic example here, obviously, would be uh, Kira Kurosawa's uh, Seven Samurai, and I know this, you're going to love this reference, Roger Corman's Battle Beyond the Stars. Oh, I hadn't heard that one. I was thinking of the Magnificent Seven. But, uh, Why would I go with the obvious? Uh, right. <laughs> um, you're, yeah, that's a good point. You know, I mean, that, that's a situation where uh, the same general storyline, plotline is there, so it is what we would consider a derivative work. Um, and they're both in the, in the film genre, so I would say it's probably not really going to be considered transformative in the way that maybe adapting it into a, you know, making a painting or a, um, or a sculpture or something. That's transformative, in, in taking it into a different medium and, and maybe even making a different message out of it. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so you know, transformative is one of the component analyses that we get into when we get into this question of is it a fair use? Is it protected by First Amendment? Um, and it, you know, it, it's a, this is this weird four-factor test that we have to evaluate each case on its own, and then transformativeness comes in and and sort of permeates all four of the factors, and we <laughs> nobody really fully understands it. So. Yeah, so I agree. You know, because um, the Derivative works tend to be real comic because we can, even though we have to deal with the same basic tropes, mm-hmm. um, we tend to basically put a different skin on it, so to speak. So you know, from a, it's the running joke of from a, a from a role player's perspective, there's no difference between a rifle and a laser gun and a crossbow. They all do the same basic concept, which is doing damage at range. Yeah, just the number of hit points for it. Right. Or in this case, the technology in use. Yeah. It's the same basic concept, it's just a different skin. Indeed. So, um, is there any actual key, is there any examples of good uh, difference between derivative works? 
You okay. know, as far as, the, as far as what the range of difference has to be, or basically what I'm saying is obvious I couldn't do an exact copy of the Seven yeah. Samurai. Exactly how far would I have to change it in order to consider it basically a new work? Well, it, it really isn't a question of how much do you have to change. It, it, it's because if you're copying something, then you're copying, even if you do then go and change it in a dramatic direction. If it's an entirely original work, then we don't have this conversation at all. But when the works appear to be somewhat similar, then, then we have to anal- analyze also how much access did the alleged infringer have to the original work and... You know, we're, do we allow a jury or a judge to draw an inference that it was, in, in fact, copying and not some kind of independent creation or some other kind of protected free speech, uh, you know, or, or was what was taken so small and minor that it doesn't matter? We call that de minimis use. But uh, so I would say it's not about whether you have to change it. It's about whether you're making a copy. If you, if you have to ask, did I change it enough? The answer is probably no. Okay. Yeah, I'm just pointing out because with Magnificent Seven, I think there actually was a an actual option to, sorry, it was actually based off Seven Samurai and actually there was actually the legal and all that was actually taken yeah, care was, of. Yeah, it as was a contract. As opposed to Battle Beyond the Stars, which was, yeah, we're going to basically have this farm boy go after these seven space warriors, grab them all together for the mutual defense against a local warlord. So. Yeah, you know the truth is we could probably find enough uh, instances in historical fiction and well historical uh, uh, texts of similar stories about you know the assembly of a posse or or the um, uh, the the townspeople going after <laughs> after Doctor Frankenstein. You know there are lots of situations where there a, a group of warriors has been assembled or a group of leaders has been assembled to go out and rescue. It probably goes back to um, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, even, when you start to think about, you know, where those sort of fundamental common themes come from. But Kurosawa told the story a certain way, and The Magnificent Seven was very obviously an adaptation of that film. And so uh, the, the producers were right to go and get the rights from him. Okay. That's sort of a nice distinction on that. You know, basically looking at the fact you actually, there was enough similarity that they were actually worried enough about the making sure they actually had the rights to it. So. I suspect that it was actually, you know, from the get-go, they knew they were wanting to do a, a an English-language cowboy version of the Magnificent, uh, excuse me, of the Seven Samurai. Right. And the Seven Samurai is definitely a classic. You definitely see it yeah. keep popping up every so often. So... I mean, it's just something cool about, I mean, it's not just gathering your fellow, uh, fellowship, so to speak. It's just, there is actually the, it's different. <laughs> right. So, um, sorry, you're answering me way too quickly. Um, <laughs> that's not a problem. <laughs> I mean, I'm a lawyer. I can talk on, on end without stop. So, <laughs> Try to give you a chance to ask more questions. That's fine. I like you said. That's one of the reasons I put in the talk as much as you want. There's usually something on this somewhere along the line. What's the format of your show? How long are most episodes? About forty-five minutes. Okay. So we got about ten, fifteen minutes to play. Mm-hmm. I'm not too worried about it because we still. I still. 
little bit of extra stuff we can add in. Yeah, sure. And I basically always, like I said, don't worry about it. If we run short, we run short. If we run long, hey, cool. Mm-hmm. So um, are there any particular issues you see coming up as far as uh, copyright or business type issues a lot that should be stamped out, so to speak? Well, I, you know, lately I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of litigation or a lot of uh, saber rattling anyway around these areas that probably fall under fair use or de minimis use, and I think that uh, a lot of the big rights holders, the big studios, and and even the big comic book companies are really uh, throwing their weight around and intimidating the little guy um, into capitulation rather than sort of allowing for a robust uh, development of the art form by allowing for the smaller uses to go on. And, you know, so I don't, it's not really an issue to watch out for. It's just something to be aware of that. I think, you know, if you're creating work that is relating to paying homage to, or, or uh, uh, commenting on other work, this, uh, the, the, the climate these days is let's attack first and we'll see if we can figure out fair use later. Uh, there have been some recent cases on uh, dealing with YouTube, actually, that said that when copyright owners do a DMCA takedown, uh, they have to first consider, could this be fair use, and at least make a good faith assessment so that they're not violating on the rights of, of the people who've posted the stuff that they're going to take down. And that was the, the, the case you might have heard about uh, where Universal Music, on behalf of Prince and his music, took down a video of a little kid dancing around. Uh, while the, his, the Prince song, Let's Go Crazy, was playing in the background. And uh, after nine and a half years of litigation, the United States Supreme Court finally said, you know, um, copyright holders have to check into this question of fair use before they do these draconian takedown proceeds, proceedings, uh, or else they can end up paying <laughs> the other side's legal fees. So, um, yeah, that's something to be mindful of on both sides of it. If you're on the uh, receiving end of these things, of course, claim fair use and, you know, do your, your uh, counter notification, get your thing put back up. But if you're on the owner end where you're trying to get something taken down, think hard about whether it really might be uh, fair use or otherwise permissible use. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of what I've seen is basically it's done a lot more to protect the trademark more than anything else. Uh, Paramount's a pretty good uh, stickler, for example. Uh, in fact, just a couple of years ago, they, what they ended up that they, they changed their mind on how they proceeded, but they basically took the uh, fan had actually put up the other all the money in the Kickstarter and all that to put out a fan version of a Star Wars property or Star Trek property. Sorry, yeah. I have to keep those properties different in shape. Right. Paramount, we're dealing Star Trek, um, and ended up basically suing, doing an actual cease and desist. Yeah. And then actually changed their mind on and actually decided to go ahead and finance the project. Yeah, there have been a few of those kind of situations. Uh, there's also a, a, a case <laughs> that's just wrapped up. I think it's just wrapped up uh, dealing with both Paramount and uh, Theodore Geisel's estate, Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, because uh, a team of, uh, of artists came up with a concept for a project called uh, Oh, the Places You'll Boldly Go. And it was, it's a Star Trek uh, version uh, or telling of a story uh, in the rhyming cadence of the Dr. Seuss material, a la uh, 
I don't remember what the actual title was now. Is it Oh, the Places You'll Go or something like that? See, uh, I, yeah, I think they were having fun with uh, Green Eggs and Ham, but I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe that's, well, there was a Green Eggs and Ham one also, but yeah, this one was a Star Trek and Dr. Seuss, so it was both Paramount and uh, uh, Theodore Geisel. The, the Geisel Estate, and Paramount stepped away and said, no, we don't think this is terrible. <laughs> you know, this is fine. It's a parody. But uh, the uh, the creators of this thing uh, uh, seem to have prevailed in litigation. Admittedly, the one I would love to see fight it out would have been uh, Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey, but that's me. <laughs> you understand there's a connection there, right? Yes, definitely. It's it, Well, the Fifty Shades, didn't it start as uh, as fan-created fiction based on the, uh, well, tied to the original? It was uh, fanfic based on Twilight. Let's be, you know, let's be open about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there was no disguising it. It was just straightforward. Hey, I'm doing this fanfic, and I'm just changing a lot of the elements. Yeah, and, you know, and even if you had copied certain character names, I don't think if just names would have necessarily been an infringement. That this is one of those things where um, inspiration is very different from um, from source material. Well, from you know being considered the source of a copy. So uh, it is what it is. Which of course brings up the fun. Uh, just how important is uh, trademark? Uh, enforcement well you know trade let's distinguish copyright and trademark for a minute a copyright protects the the uh, expression of a of ideas and facts in a, the particular form that an author has set it down on paper or, or affixed it into some form so uh, original works of authorship trademarks protect brands that is distinctive words or phrases or logos or symbols those kinds of things that that identify source and origin of a particular thing, in this case, a work. So um, I think it can be very important to protect your brand. I mean, you know, uh, nobody's going to, nobody's going to try to come out with another comic book series and call it, you know, Marvel this or Marvel that or DC that because those companies have established very strong brands and protected them with solid trademark registration and so on. Likewise with brands like Superman, Batman, Spider, you know, all the, the superhero names are trademarked as, not just as, as literary characters, um, but also as, you know, for merchandise and those kinds of things. So I think if you, if you create characters or a universe uh, that is uh, going to have value because of merchandise and beyond just the storytelling, it is definitely worth locking down that protection. And the sooner you do that, the better, because... Whether your plan is to exploit that stuff yourself or maybe you're going to get bought out in a few years, if you own the trademark, you had that registered, you're, you're in a stronger position when it comes time for those negotiations. Yeah. Uh, just Sorry, I just recently saw a really cute comic that basically uh, actually turns out it's not a really new comic. Uh, basically what happened is that a couple of Marvel car- uh, creators got together and decided to... Uh, Basically, to I can't remember who was it. Wonder to the female ver- version of. Sorry, I wonder how DC would feel if we did a female ver- version of our characters, Marvel Man, or sorry, Wonder Man and Power Man. <laughs> Keeping in mind, of course, DC has well Wonder Woman, obviously, as well as Power Girl. Yeah. There was Luke Cage dressed as a female version of himself. 
Wow. So, so, so they actually did this, or this was something that they were considering? Oh, the, the, the comic, not, sorry, when I'm talking comic in this case, I'm not talking the full 22 pages thing. I'm talking, they actually did a one panel oh, okay. where they just simply said, to, you know, just a real quick, we would never, ever publish this. Yeah. Oh, so they were just making fun of the idea of how trademarks and copyrights are used. And yeah. Wielded as swords in this business. Yeah. Luca Cage. Power Girl. Wait a sec. <laughs> so, and of course, Power Girl is, well, yeah, one of the more infamous uh, DC characters mm-hmm. because of the uh, window. Um, so, yeah, I'm just curious because is it possible to actually lose your trademark if you don't enforce it? Yeah, uh, great question. When When you own a trademark, one of your obligations as a trademark owner is to keep using the, the mark in in commerce. That is, you know, if you abandon it, eventually you lose the right to use it. You lose the right to stop others from using it. That usually takes about five years of no publication of anything and no remarketing of things. Uh, but also, if somebody else comes along and starts using your brand without your permission and you do nothing about it, uh, you stand to lose it there too. That's that's viewed similarly to an abandonment. They'll they'll say, look, this person isn't treating it like property, and so they shouldn't be given property rights in this thing. Um, you know, so you don't you shouldn't sit on your rights is really the bottom line here. Uh, we have an obligation to police these things, and sometimes that just means hey, writing them a letter or sending a notice, hey, this is mine. What you're doing isn't okay, but if you Give me a few dollars or maybe not even money changing hands. Do you give me a little credit or something like that? I'll give you a license and you can have permission to do this uh, if you're so inclined to do that. But it is incumbent on an owner to police their ownership of, of their property. And, of course, pointing out this, going back to good old Roger Corman again, this, of course, was the reason for the original uh, Fantastic Four movie that was never shown. I wasn't aware of that. The, you, 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 did you know that Roger Corman actually did have a Fantastic Four movie? Or the, I, no, I didn't. I didn't. One he did. It's available on YouTube. Ah. Highly recommended, especially if you think, yeah, it's definitely Roger Corman 110% doing a comic book movie. Okay. Uh, without permission. And so. Oh, that's the fun part. He did it completely with permission. Oh. The entire point was that. The company that currently that has held the rights to Fantastic Four is about to lose them, and they need to do something about that. Ah. So what they did was they commissioned Roger Corman to do a version of the Fantastic Four. Oh, so there was an iteration that kept the, the brand alive so they could actually do something else with it. And were they anticipating that the Corman thing wouldn't take off and become so widely known that it's it's a peculiar set of facts, but interesting. Uh, it's just the, the well, Corman movie was never actually put out. It was just wow. done, just like you said, just for the sake of trademark. So, was that one of George Romero's projects also? Did he work on it? I don't think so. Okay. So, um, I just pointed out because you, with comics, you have, you have a lot of orphan works out there. In fact, there's actually a couple of websites that are uh, point out characters that have actually gone into the public domain because of trademark and copyright issues. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a little bit 
unusual to hear about things falling into, well, trademarks will fall into the public domain because, again, as you abandon them. Copyright, though, uh, interestingly, doesn't expire until, well, modern, the modern approach is 70 years after the author of the work dies. So uh, it lasts a good long time, and, and that creates this orphan works problem where if somebody hasn't registered their work with the government and, and sort of said, hey, here's where you find me if you want to go look for this stuff, um, uh, it, it means that it makes it very hard if somebody does want to adapt or, or do a, a, a new edition of something that, that pre, pre-existed. Uh, you can't track down the owners. You're not supposed to do it without permission, period. And so there's, there's a move in the Copyright Office and the Congress to create a special category of these orphan works and, and set up a, a, what do you call it, a, like a fund to collect the money that would normally be paid to the owners. But uh, I don't think it has that much traction yet. Yeah. Um, so. uh, just, just for your own edification, you might look up a character by the name of, uh, I want to say, Mr. Terror. Okay. Um just because he's one of those characters that fell into public domain and has actually been had a couple of iterations in a, very, in a couple of different comic books. Oh, was it created early on and like before 1975 or so? Uh, yeah, I think it was one of the one of the original comic book characters back in yeah, the so, 40s. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so under the old copyright law, co- the copyright would would uh, only begin to exist from the publication with proper copyright notice and or the registration of the work. So if an artist created something and put it out and didn't put notice on it, didn't uh, register it, it would, it was in the public domain very early. And so that's why you have, yeah, certain items are, you know, just out there in the public domain, but anything created since January of 1978 falls under this life plus 70 rule. Yeah, well, I'd sort of point that out because there's also the issue, like you point out, that it wasn't used for it. Keep in mind, a lot of the old comic book companies yeah. died in the 1950s because of the uh, Wortham incident. So, I, yeah, seduction of the innocent, worth looking into if you're into the comic book history. But anyway, uh, a lot of comic book companies died, and because of that, a lot of their works ended up, nobody enforced the trademark on any of them. So. Oh. Oh, that's interesting. And because that you had a lot of characters from the 1940s and even the 1950s end up in the public domain. Ah. So I've actually wanted to bring up, I've actually wanted to debate, I've been debating doing a a film based on Madame Fatal just because it would be fun. (laughs) Uh, No, you want to talk comic book characters, the weird history. You, she's, you're going to love this one. It's an actor who decided to take on the the, the crime-fighting persona of an elderly woman. Huh. Mrs. Doubtfire with martial arts. Wow. And that's, and it's, it's just, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's wild. <laughs> I like it. So, uh, well, okay, so that's the area where we might get into it. Is it transformative? Because it's sort of poking fun at both the Mrs. Doubtfire kind of character and the martial arts genre, you know. Uh, Bruce Lee becomes Mrs. Doubtfire or Mrs. Doubtfire becomes Bruce Lee, whatever it is. Um, you know, that's neither a Bruce Lee movie nor, <laughs> nor a Mrs. Doubtfire. So we get into it. Yeah, it's very transformative. Just because it was inspired or flavored by some of those components doesn't necessarily mean it's substantially similar. Right. 
All right. And I guess the obligatory, anything else you John, might have missed you want to I, put in? I think we've done a great job of covering the kinds of issues uh, from a legal standpoint that creators of, uh, of graphic novels and, our, and comic books uh, ought to be thinking about. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Thank you. And I definitely want to make sure we have the corporate veil in there. It's just one of those things that's come up a couple of times recently. So, yeah. All right. I guess the obligatory mandatory plug for yourself. <laughs> well, you can find information about me at my website at firemark.com or uh, on my YouTube channel where I do a Q&A series called Asked and Answered. Go on over to firemark.tv to find that. And um, uh, I have another site at gordonfiremark.com for all my other stuff if you're interested. And on most social media, gfiremark is the best way to find me. Cool. And, of course, you can support WCRI at uh, – now, I always mess this up. Uh, Patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O sparrows. Nice. Thank you. And uh, have a great day. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me.